And as always, we thank you for your word. And Lord, when we open your word, we, we want to be taught. And, uh, and our section tonight has created no small controversy over the centuries. And uh, so I pray for some clarity tonight, uh, how tempted I was to, teach, to just teach verse by verse through it. But that's not our objective uh, this year. And uh, so I pray that the survey uh, would help people through their understanding of the text. And uh, if there's any confusion about God's redemptive plan for Israel, that it would be um, settled tonight. And uh, so, yeah, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, Thursday nights has been uh, committed to a Bible survey. We've been doing it for quite some time now. I think we'll finish this year. Uh, I'm going to try to group the prison epistles together, the pastoral epistles, maybe in two nights. And um, you already know the book of Hebrews, so we don't need to do that one again, right? No, we'll, we'll review it. And, uh, and then, of course, we'll end up in Revelation, which will be lots of fun. So how many of you guys have studied Revelation? Okay. So I taught Revelation on Sunday morning Man, that must have been eight or nine years ago. And that's when John Wiley's first Sunday was when I was doing my, well, he had come the Sunday before, but Pastor Greg was teaching. And then he came for the introduction, and he thought, well, never heard Revelation taught, so. And then the poor family stayed. <laughs> so they haven't recovered since. But anyway, our Bible survey so far has brought us to the book of Romans. Uh, where we've been talking about, we've been actually taking one theological section after another. We've talked uh, about the doctrine of condemnation. We've talked about the doctrine of justification. And we move to sanctification. And then suddenly, abruptly, Paul just starts talking about ethnic Israel. And uh, it seems to be kind of a, an abrupt transition. Um, I don't think that it's abrupt. I think he's just trying to answer a question. And uh, so hopefully tonight we can answer that question and maybe uh, produce some more questions. Who knows? But uh, because of various uh, theological groups that are out there, uh, Romans 9 through 11 has become a theological battleground that I think that has created more confusion than clarity. And, uh, and I think that's super unfortunate. The, really, the plain reading of the text has been avoided in order to kind of abide by, you know, some theological pet that different groups have had. And, uh, and, and that's not uncommon by any stretch of the imagination, but Romans 9 through 11 seems to have gotten special attention from certain groups. And uh, so it's all fun. The extreme Calvinist... Uh, and if you're a strong Calvinist tonight, um, please don't be offended. Uh, I still love you. And um, I hope that in mutual Christian charity we can love each other. Uh, but I don't think I know any extreme Calvinists here, but I don't know everybody. But the extreme Calvinist uses chapter 9 to demonstrate God's sovereignty at the exclusion of man's free will. He goes to chapter 9 to defend unconditional election to individual people, 
Now, that is opposed to election of nations, which we'll talk about a little bit. And then, of course, those Calvinists that adhere to what's called double predestination. How many of you guys know that fun term? It's that God has predestined some to heaven, and he's predestined others to hell, and uh, there's nothing anybody can do about it. God has sovereignly predetermined every man's destiny. Uh, so those are three interesting uh, doctrines that they run to chapter 9, 4. Uh, and then there's others that have used the section to demonstrate that either the Gentile church has replaced Israel as the chosen people, something that's called replacement theology, or supersessionism. How many of you guys have heard of that, supersessionism? It's to replace Israel as God's chosen people. Uh, and then there's others that say that the church has been absorbed into Israel. Okay, we'll get into that. Now, I don't personally feel that, that any of these are in keeping with the point that Paul is trying to make from the text. And whenever you, you stray from the point that the author is trying to make, uh, I believe you end up in error. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that you can't come to other theological conclusions uh, as you're tracing a line of reasoning. But if your conclusion contradicts the conclusion of Paul, I think you have the wrong conclusion. Okay, does that sound fair? Okay, something about the inspired word, something like that. So, so chapter nine through 11 is really, when we, you get into it, is all about God's permanent and unconditional election of ethnic Israel and his future plans for them. Okay, his future plans for them. So Romans chapter nine has been considered kind of a parenthesis in Paul's discussion about the gospel. Remember we began, Paul says, for as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. The book of Romans is a presentation of the fullness of the gospel. And so some say, well Paul, when he comes to this section, it's a parenthesis. Well, maybe, maybe in some sense, uh, and, and the reason they assume that it's a parenthesis is because there's this, what appears to be this abrupt transition. Suddenly, Paul, they think, leaves the discussion of the gospel to talk about the Jews. Well, I don't, I think it's parenthetical, but I think it's still in keeping with the gospel, okay, God's ultimate plan. Uh, also, three out of the 16 chapters, these three, uh, it's a rather large chunk out of Romans. In fact, the doctrine of condemnation was made up of almost three chapters. The doctrine of justification was almost three chapters. The doctrine of sanctification was three chapters. This doctrine concerning Israel is three chapters. Do you think that we should give it some careful attention? I think so. If Paul gives it as much attention as he did justification, I think that we need to pay attention to it. So the question that needs to be asked is, what of the Jew? Uh, why is Paul suddenly talking about ethnic Israel? Why is he doing that? Okay. Well, the question of the Jew arises because of what Paul affirmed in chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, and then what follows in that conclusion. Okay. His affirmation is this. He says, all whom God foreknew will be in glory. Everybody that God foreknows, that is, for redemption, will be in glory, okay? They will be in glory. Otherwise, God does not have what we would call infallible 
foreknowledge of the future. If God knows it will, that it will happen, what will happen? It will happen. Okay, so if God foreknows you to be in glory with him, guess what? You will be with him in glory. Okay? Otherwise, God does not have foreknowledge that is infallible or without any error. So God knows in advance everyone who will be saved. Nothing can change that. And so Paul concludes this way. He says, therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay. So we might conclude this way. Those whom God foreknew are eternally secure. Is that safe to say? I just lost all my stuff. And this is why I don't use this program on Sunday mornings. I don't trust it. I'm going to the Apple store, Gabe. Just relax. Keeps hounding me. Do you know how long it takes to... You go up there, you take him something, and you're there for six hours. It's ridiculous. So, anyway. Okay. It dropped all my notes. I love that. Okay. So those whom God foreknew are eternally secure. Nothing can separate them from God. God's knowledge is eternally securing. So everybody says, well, Pastor Ben, do you believe in eternal security? Well, the Bible says that God knows those who are his. Okay, now I don't know those who are his with any divine certainty, but he does. And I know he cannot be wrong about what he knows. Okay, so in this sense, I most definitely believe in eternal security, okay? So now, but what about the ethnic, about ethnic Israel or national Israel? They were foreknown by God. Paul will even say that in chapter 11. And yet they have rejected Christ, apart from whom no one can be saved. That poses a problem, okay? Clearly they are not saved, and so there can be no assurance of their salvation. And if there's no assurance for them who were foreknown by God, what guarantee is there for us? I've often said in, in a similar fashion, God has made promises to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. And if he can't keep his promises to ethnic Israel, what makes you think he can keep his promises to us? So either he always keeps his promises to everyone, or he, he just doesn't have the ability to assure that he does to anyone. Okay. So how do we settle this problem? Okay, what place does ethnic Israel have in God's redemptive plan, seeing that they have corporately, nationally, rejected Christ? Now, if you know anything about religion in Israel today, most Jews are secular. Most Jews are secular. They are not saved. Okay, yeah. So what I want to do is I want to kind of examine each of Paul's opening statements in all three chapters. And it helps you kind of get a feel what Paul is trying to get at. Okay? So you can follow along. I'm going to start in Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. You can flip pages or tap your phone, whatever you're doing. Romans chapter 9. And listen to Paul's heart. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. I don't know if you noticed that, but he just called Jesus the eternally blessed God. Some good um, doctrine of Jesus' deity there. So the first question is, who is Israel in uh, this description by Paul? Paul says, they're my brethren, according to the flesh. He's saying, I'm related to them by blood. That's, that's, an, that's Israel. He says, of the recipients of adoption, the glory now, the Shekinah, probably speaking of when God's presence was manifest over the mercy seat on uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, speaking of the priests, the promises, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from whom, he says, Christ came into the world. So clearly, when Paul here defines what Israel is, uh, Israel is uh, it's, it's ethnic Israel, it's national Israel. But in the text, he makes a distinction between the election of national Israel and individual Jews who have trusted in Christ for salvation. And I think this is where a lot of people begin to get confused. He makes that distinction in verse six. Here are those who are born of Israel. And he says, not everyone who is born of Israel is necessarily Israel, or we might say true Israel. And he's saying there's national Israel, ethnic Israel, and then among them are Israelis who are saved. And he's going to make his defense for that in chapter 11. So there's a difference, but both of them fit within God's redemptive plan. Okay. So a few words in the, in the section I think are important. The first one is adoption, speaking of Israel, the covenants and promises. So God adopted Israel as his own people. He, <clears throat> excuse me, he made covenants with them and he made promises to them. So if Israel has no plan in God's redemptive, I'm sorry, if Israel has no place in God's redemptive plan, he will have to disown them. He will have to break covenant with them and break his promises to them. Do you think that poses a problem? Big time. To get God to do any of those is an insurmountable problem. And if it were possible, it'd rob God of his deity. I got a serious problem with that. Okay? I mean, it's impossible, but uh, theologically speaking, we should have a problem with that. God, when does God not keep his promises? No, it's a man that doesn't keep his promises. And that's the big difference. Uh, God says, I'm not a man that I should lie. Numbers 23. Okay? God always keeps covenant, and he will never cast off his children. Uh, if you have questions about that, read Psalm 94. No matter what Israel does, they cannot remove themselves from God's redemptive plan. No matter how sinful, they cannot remove themselves. It's very interesting. Psalm 94, uh, they will suffer discipline, but never condemnation. That's interesting. Also, Jeremiah 31 uh, verse 37. There's many, many more. So anyway, people have developed uh, really just many odd kind of positions about Romans 9. But as I said before, until they take the position of Paul, they don't have a good position. Now begin chapter 10 with me. Chapter 10 begins this way. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So again, who is Israel? He says, Israel are those who have been seeking to establish their own righteousness, and he means by keeping the law of Moses. He's speaking again of ethnic Israel. But Paul demonstrates in the chapter that only those who believe in Christ are saved. Remember, there's the election of Israel as a nation or an ethnic group, but even though the ethnic group has been elected, as Paul says in chapter nine, through whom God would give the promises, the covenants and things like that, it does not guarantee individual salvation. Okay? So Paul has to talk about this whole issue that apart from Christ, no Jew can be saved, just like no Gentile can be saved, okay? It requires Christ, but God's promises are to ethnic Israel, national Israel, Israel as a people group. So what of that? Go to chapter 11. It starts like this. Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? What's his response? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, and if that's not good enough, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? What is God's response to him? He says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace, Romans 11, one through five. So again, what is Israel? Here, it is the ethnic group that God foreknew. Whom he foreknew, what does he say in Romans eight? will be with him in glory, okay? Well, we've got to wrestle with that, okay? Those that came from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has not cut them off, Paul says. So first, Paul and other Jewish believers, they confirm that God always has a remnant, okay, among his chosen people, even when the rest have stumbled into rebellion and unbelief, always. That will never change, okay? But now, let's talk about national ethnic Israel. Paul says that by and large, verse seven through 10, Israel is under divine chastisement. We might say Israel is apostate, okay? God is currently chastising them. He's disciplining them. And what is interesting, Paul says their chastisement is is more than just for Israel's discipline. In Romans 11, 11 through 24, Paul explains the opportunity that arose from Israel's national rejection of Christ. This, this national rejection of the Son of God was no surprise to God. He knew it in advance, he prepared for it, he made plans for it, 
and he's going to use it for his own glory and to fulfill his promises, okay? Let me sum it up this way. The disobedience, and we'll go through that section at the end. This, the disobedience and unbelief of Israel led to the obedience and faith of the Gentile. He's using their unbelief and disobedience to bring the Gentile to faith, okay? When Israel rejected the gospel, the gospel was then taken to the Gentile. But if Israel, though rebellious, remains as God's chosen people, what will become of them? Okay, that's what Paul is trying to answer. So just as God used the disobedience of Israel to lead the Gentiles to faith, he's going to use the obedience of the Gentile to lead Israel back to the faith. You know what he says that the responsibility of the Gentile is? To provoke the Jew to jealousy. We are enjoying the God that you are supposed to be enjoying. We're enjoying all of the spiritual benefits that you should have, but because of rebellion, you're being left out, okay? Of course, that's temporary. So Israel as a nation will eventually be led back to faith, okay? Not simply the few individual Jews that believe or that remnant, but now we're talking about something much greater. Paul says in verse 25 through 27, he says to the, he says, earlier he said, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He says, I do not want you, I, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, that means blindness has a terminating point, until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, that is Israel, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Yeah, it's my covenant. Where was that covenant made? In the Old Testament. Yeah. So what Paul is saying, as soon as the last Gentile is saved, according to God's foreknowledge, Blindness will be lifted, will be removed from Israel, and they will come to faith according to God's plan. He will bring his promise together to a future generation of Jews. He will. And listen to how Paul concludes here. For the gifts and the calling of God is irrevocable. What does that mean about ethnic Israel? The gift and the calling of God is irrevocable. There's nothing the Gentiles can do about it. There's nothing the Jew can do about it, okay? God will bring this all back together according to his plan, okay? And then uh, God's wisdom in the application of redemption both to the Jews and the Gentiles then leads Paul to this doxology and praise in verse 33 through 36. So what he's doing is he's, he's looked at, through divine revelation, he sees all of this he knows how God's plan is going to unravel in history, and he says, I gotta worship God for this. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So in nine, Paul says, 
I wish that I could be accursed so that my people, my brethren could be saved. And then at 10, he says, my heart's desire for Israel. And then he says, has God cast off his people in no way? And then he says, God is using all of this stuff. It's, it's, a, it's divine orchestration. And now the end of all things is revealed. So it's a divinely orchestrated and revealed end for Israel. Okay? There is a future generation of Jews that God will summon back to himself and he'll fulfill all of his promises to them. And Paul says, God has to be recognized as just the mind and the master behind all that. It's really sweet. So let me review some of this with you. In chapter nine, Paul demonstrates God elected the Jewish people above all people to be the channel by which he would reveal himself, the people that he would make covenants with, the ethnic, the ethnic group that he would make promises to, and the people through whom Christ would come. This is where we don't want to be confused. By virtue of those things, it does not guarantee salvation to the individual Jew. Okay? You remember what Peter said to a Jewish audience. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Okay? Have you spoken to people that believe that Jews will be saved by virtue of their Jewishness? The apostles didn't believe that. Okay? I had a chaplain once try to convince me of that. And uh, I said, well, you're wrong. They, they have to believe in Christ. Okay? And then Romans 10 also. So as we said in chapter 10, Paul demonstrates that an individual Israeli cannot be saved apart from Christ. He too has to believe, just like the Gentile does. In chapter 11, Paul shows that Israel has not been removed from its chosen position. God is currently disciplining national Israel for unbelief. Meanwhile, using the rejection of the gospel as an opportunity to take the gospel to the Gentiles, at the fulfillment of which God will draw national Israel, not just individual Jews, to himself. That's going to be something. Okay. All those ancient promises will be fulfilled. Yeah. I like to say that as soon as he has reached a predetermined number of Gentiles, and it's predetermined because God's foreknowledge is infallible, okay? And as soon as that predetermined number is met, then God will shift his attention back to his people. It's very interesting. Fulfill his promises. Okay, now what I wanted to do um, in the time remaining is I wanted to look at verse 11 through 24. Uh, I run into a lot of people that have confusion with this, and uh, I think it's necessary to look at. One of the things that uh, is confusing for people is they don't identify all the entities that Paul uh, kind of reveals in the section, okay? Uh, most people usually see about uh, two, there's five, okay? And they're all important, okay? So let me look at the five entities with you and then we'll kind of talk about them. First, there are the natural branches which were broken off. Well, let me read it to you first. Let me get my tap and swipe out too. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. 
But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You guys see that? What's your job? To provoke Jews to jealousy. In a good way. Okay. Chuck Smith used to explain it like this. He says that when I go over to um, my son's house, and uh, there's all the grandkids there, he says that there's always this one grandchild that uh, doesn't get to me soon enough, and uh, they don't get to sit on my lap right away, and they get pouty and they walk away. So what I do is I begin to just dote and love on all of them. And then it so provokes that other grandchild to jealousy that they just can't stand it anymore, and they come into grandpa's arms. And he says that's the church's job, is to so receive the love of God that it would provoke the Jew to be restored to the God of Israel. Okay. Verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild, a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and when... when and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And that's when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He says, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, grafted in, and so all Israel will be saved. Okay, so five entities, I don't know if you caught all of them, okay? There are the natural branches which were broken off that represents ethnic Israel who has stumbled or fallen, verse 11. Then there are the wild branches. Who does that represent? Us, yeah, who were grafted in where Israel was broken off, verse 17 and 24. There is the domestic or cultivated olive tree with its root and fatness. Here's where the confusion is. This represents God and his blessing. Fatness in the scriptures is always the best. Okay, verse 17 and 24. Sort of hiding out in the text are the natural branches that remained. That represents individual Jews who are believers, like Paul, verse 17. Uh, those are the ones that the Gentiles were grafted in among Okay? 
And then there is, as we've talked about, a future generation of ethnic Jews that are going to be grafted back in to the cultivated olive tree. And he says, when that happens, it will be like Israel has been risen from the dead. Look, if Israel is secular right now, and then something occurs in history that draws them back to God, that is going to be miraculous. Amen? It will be something. It will be like them being resurrected, resurrected from the dead. Now, the confusion arises when the natural branches are equated with the olive tree itself. This is where the confusion lies. Some believe that the, the wild branches are no different than the olive tree itself. If they are the same, we must conclude that the church, when it's grafted in, becomes Israel itself, which would essentially make us Jewish. But that would contradict Paul's writing in Romans chapter 14 through 15, 2 Corinthians 3, all of Galatians, Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 1, Titus 2, 11 through 14, and as we look at it in the book of Hebrews, it just cannot, we cannot be wedged in there. Okay. But in this section, Paul actually makes a distinction between the branches and the tree. Just the same as Jesus in John 15 makes a distinction between the vine and the branches. They are not to be confused. Okay. Israel does not get to be the branches and the tree. Israel is broken, or rather, Israel is not broken off of Israel and then grafted back into Israel. Okay. Israel as the natural branches are distinct from the tree and its root and fatness. When Israel was grafted into the tree, it was then the recipient of the fatness, of the blessing of God. Those are the covenant promises. Okay? Now Israel sort of only enjoyed the covenant promises during David's reign and then briefly in some other places. But they're going to enjoy all of those blessings in the millennium because that's when those promises are just heaped upon Israel. So, the natural branches which were broken off because of unbelief, that's ethnic Israel. And the tree, what is the tree then? It's God. It's God. Yep, it's God and his blessing. Therefore, God is the tree that believers are grafted into, not Israel. How many of you heard that we're grafted into Israel? There's no place in scripture that says that. Okay. We are grafted in to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, period. Okay. Yeah. They're making a serious error of interpretation that contradicts the rest of the New Testament. Now, also from this, which I think is the strangest doctrine, others have concluded from this that the church has replaced Israel, that we've replaced Israel which also cannot be supported from the chapter or any other place in scripture. Now what I like to tell people is, uh, don't get confused by the word Israel whenever you see it in the Bible. I think Mike was saying, what happens when you look up the Greek word all? It means all. It's the same with Israel. Every time you see the word Israel, guess what it means? It means Israel. It means ethnic Israel and nothing else, okay? Now, there's only two places in the New Testament where they turn to try to establish this doctrine that we've somehow kicked Israel out and now we rule supreme in their place. Uh, there's a place in Galatians and then it's right here. But it never says that the church has replaced Israel. So every time you see it, 
just understand. I can't remember how many times the word Israel is used in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's thousands of times. And uh, guess what it always means there? It always means Israel. And uh, Paul doesn't assign some new meaning to the word in the New Testament. It just means ethnic Israel. So the question that we began with in the beginning is that if God those who he foreknows will be in glory with him, then what do we do with the nation of Israel that is in rebellion against him? And so Paul has explained that the future plans of God for Israel is their ultimate salvation. Okay, and that's, he takes three chapters to come to that conclusion. Okay, that the, the redeemer will come out of Jacob and will redeem his people. Okay. Why does it take Paul so long? I don't know. Maybe he was just super long-winded. Okay. You probably know some people like that. Anyway, uh, that's that. Next week, we're going to uh, finish the rest of the book of Romans, and everything that remains is the practical stuff about Christian living. And so we'll whip through that as fast as we can. I'll try not to get hung up on uh, the role of government because I don't want to get in a debate with Jamie. And, uh, and we'll look at practical Christian living from there. So, all right? Fair enough? Go ahead and stand up and, and uh, we'll pray. I always think it's interesting with Paul. 11 chapters of theology and just a few chapters on exhortation. But without proper theology, you can't have proper exhortation. Amen? All right. Well, Father, we love you. And Lord, I thank you that we're not in charge of the destiny of humanity, whether Gentile or Jew. But as Paul says, by the election of grace, that you will fulfill your plans, Lord, and that nothing in time has ever surprised you or, or forced you to come up with plan B. It's always been plan A. You have no plan B. That would just demonstrate some fault in your foreknowledge and sovereignty. And so, Lord, I thank you. And, uh, and I pray that tonight our time in this section of Scripture uh, would, has, has been beneficial to some, Lord and would encourage their hearts. And Lord, I love the eschatological implications of it, that one day we get to see that your ancient promises are good for all time, as they will be for Israel. And, uh, and if you're gonna keep your promises to Israel, you can most definitely keep your promises to us. So thank you, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.